The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through vision, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. I'll be reading from John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and as and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who who speak to you am He. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Please be seated. In John 3, we found that this very religious person with the right background, the right family, the right beliefs, the right knowledge, even the right practices, comes to Jesus.
Jesus. And Jesus actually exposes for him how far away that religious man is from understanding what's really happening. John has set this up on purpose so that in John 4, we see this unlikely, excluded character who begins to notice just how close he is to Jesus' kingdom. This morning, I want us to recognize just how thirsty we are. But if you're like me, you so often take that thirst to things that will not last. For performance, for identity, for reputation, for pleasure. To feel a little better. We take that thirst and we try and make ourselves feel at home. But it doesn't work. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. Are you thirsty? Let's pray and ask God to bless the study of His Word this morning. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank You and I praise You for Your Word and Your Holy Spirit, and I ask that You would send Your Spirit on us this morning lavishly. That those of us who feel far off would be brought near, that those of us who are struggling would be deeply encouraged. And we ask that You would make what happens here this morning true and real in the gates of heaven. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of my favorite preachers tells this story. It's a recounting of a, a true story. You may have heard of the U.S. as Indianapolis. On July 30th, 1945, coming to the end of World War II, this battle cruiser, it was huge, was returning from a mission where it was actually delivering the uranium plutonium excuse me, the enriched uranium to Allied forces in the Pacific. But it didn't make it home. The Indianapolis was struck by a torpedo on its way back, and it sank in 12 minutes. 300 of the 1,200 men died immediately. And 900 of those men went into the water. or knew they were missing for four days. They were enduring no food, no water, under the blazing sun of the Pacific. The 900 men that went from this boat into the Pacific, only 300 came out alive. One of those who survived was the chief medical officer, the main doctor on the ship, who recorded his own experience he said this, There was nothing I could do. Nothing I could do but give advice, bury the dead at sea, save the life jackets, and try to keep the men from drinking the water. When the hot sun came out, we were in the crystal clear ocean. And we were so thirsty. You couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink the water. The real young ones, you take away their hope, you take away their water and their food, and they would drink the salt water, and they would die fast. I even remember striking one of the ones who was drinking the salt water to try to stop him. They would get 
dehydrated and then become maniacal. They were mass hallucin- hallucinations. I was amazed how everyone else would see the same thing. One man would see something and then everyone else would see it. Even I fought the hallucinations off and on. And something always brought me back. What happened to these men is that they were cast into the water because of their ship sinking. And as these 900 men try and hold on to each other, they're being picked off by sharks. And then they're in the blazing sun of the Pacific. And they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're dying. They're literally burying the people at sea, sinking them. The sharks are coming and attracting them and they're trying to make so much noise that the sharks would go away. And in moments of quiet, they would see the light come down and shine on the crystal clear sea. And they would think, water, and they would drink. Although this water, because of its salt content, would dehydrate them and it would actually poison them even quicker. So it looked like they could drink and slake their thirst was actually killing them. And he said, no matter what he said, please don't drink it. It's not good for you. The men would gulp it down and die anyway. Jesus is actually calling us to a moment here where he's looking at people, sinners like you and like me, and he's calling us and saying, don't drink that water anymore. Whether it's the water of your own reputation or the water of living by your fears or the water of how you look, your appearance, or the water of your bank account, He's saying that will not fill you up. Ultimately, it will kill you. Don't drink the water. It's a message so badly that this woman needed to hear. You see, this woman, and we'll talk about her in a second, she is obviously a woman who's had a difficult time. We find from the passage that she's had five husbands, and the man that she's living with now is not her husband. We find the fact that she shows up in the heat of the day at noon to gather water when other women would have come in the morning or in the late afternoon. Why? Because she's embarrassed. She's tired of their whispers. And Jesus wants some water, but he's using it as an illustration to point her to something deeper, water that she actually needs, living water. So let's look at the text together. First of all, who does Jesus call to the well? Who does Jesus call to the well of living water? And the answer is the excluded. The excluded. Look again with me in the first few verses of 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left again and departed again for Galilee. Listen to this. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying that to you? Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What I want you to see about this is that the religious man comes to Jesus in John 3 and tries to sort of talk his way into 
the kingdom, of what he knows and what he's done and really who he is that he's the teacher. This woman knows nothing. She's far off. There's several things going against her in this culture. First of all, she's a woman. In that culture, men and women did not speak. Women had so little rights they couldn't even testify in court. These are actual quotes from teachers about women in that time. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife, because of the gossip of men. And this is another quote. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. That's why we know that Jesus' disciples walk up on him and are startled that he's talking, is because the practice had been that you don't talk with women. Women are trouble. It's dangerous to talk with a woman. And yet Jesus bursts through that cultural norm and ignores it. And he engages her gently and lovingly. If you're a woman in this room and you struggle with religiosity and how it sometimes puts women down shamefully, as we study John, I want you to watch very closely how Jesus interacts with women. Women are always safe and accepted at Jesus' table. You see that here. He should be ignoring her. Instead, he talks to her. She's not just a woman, but she's a Samaritan. Samaritans were like the worst of the worst if you were a Jew. Samaritans had co-mingled and co-married with the Babylonians. And so they didn't have the pure Jewish blood as was thought important at that time. They were sort of this half-caste is what it was called. One commentator says that they were religious heretics. So the common practice is the Jews would go way out around, excuse me, way out around Samaria. They would make their trip longer because they didn't want to interact with any of the Samaritans. There's a quote that actually says this. The Jews actually prayed this. And Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. It's pretty intense. Oh, and Lord, by the way, those people down the road, please don't remember them when we get to your kingdom. She was a woman and she was a Samaritan. She was hated for her theology and for her bloodline. She is an outsider. And more than just being a woman, and being a Samaritan, she's also a sinner. Look with me in verse 17 and 18. Sorry, starting in 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus lovingly but directly calls her on her sin. Go and get your husband. She answers simply, I don't have a husband. As if to make it go away quickly. I don't want to talk about this any further. I can't even believe I'm in this conversation. I don't have a husband. And Jesus nudges her. And says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Meaning Jesus takes his finger on the most And he puts his hand on it to let her know that she's known. 
is placed in the middle of the day so that she would avoid all the cruel whispers of the women and the men who are judging her and condemning her as someone who has lived a terrible life of sin. And Jesus talks to her and dignifies her and lets her know that she's known. He says, go get your husband. Oh, that's right, you don't have a husband. You've had five of them. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. The reason that this story is paired with the story in John 3 about Nicodemus is Nicodemus is a man and he's the teacher of Israel and he knows and does the right thing. And here is a woman who's from the wrong background. She doesn't know the right things and obviously she doesn't do the right things. And which one does Jesus move towards? Jesus moves towards the excluded, the downtrodden, and the sinner. I want you to remember that over and over again, because as you live life in a church, you will start to think, the longer I'm in this church, the less sinner-like I'll be. And then what will happen is you'll start to see the very real sin that's still in your life, and then you'll think, I have to hide. Because at this point in my life, I shouldn't still be wrestling with this. I shouldn't still be doing this, or I should have started doing this by now. And you'll think it's your sinningness that disqualifies you from the presence of Jesus. And what the gospel thing here, it's your sinfulness that draws him to you. Your neediness, the fact that you can't hold it together, the fact that you can't get it right, that's what attracts Jesus. In this church, I desperately want you to believe that you are capable of any sin given the right circumstances. That with five minutes, you could ruin your life. You want to know how, where you're at in dealing with other people's sin? I hear about other people's sin a lot, as you would imagine. I get paid for that. But think about when you hear about someone's sin. Someone's really ugly, nasty, gritty sin. Something that they shouldn't be doing. What is your reaction to that? Is your reaction to that, Oh my goodness, I can't believe they've done this. I cannot believe it. This is not the kind of attitude or behavior or actions that's consistent with a Christian. I can't believe it. How could they have done this? is your attitude, it says something about you that, yes, you're a sinner, but you're a pretty good sinner. You're pretty well put back together, that you have kind of made a reputation of yourself of not making bad choices. You've distanced yourself from the very thing that attracts Jesus to you, which is your neediness. When you hear about sin in this church, and you will hear about sin in this church, Your thought should be, man, on any other given moment, that could have been me. Any other given circumstances, I could have been the one who did that. And rather than judge them, I'm going to fall on my knees and pray for them, pray for encouragement. And if I know them, I'm going to draw near them because I know what it's like to be in sin. What would it do for our community? What would it do for our city? If this was the kind of place that, regardless 
sin you were wrestling with, you knew you'd be treated with respect and love and acceptance in this room. I mean, this woman is a laughing stock, and Jesus dignifies her and he loves her. It's a non sequitur to think that you are a Christian and a good person. Paul comes to the end of his ministry life and says, I am the chief of sinners. Not just I'm not as good as an apostle or that I'm not as good as all the other Christians. If you line up all the sinners in the world, Paul says, I'm the worst one. I love the quote that says, if you don't think you're the worst sinner you know, you don't know yourself very well. Joe Nelson once said this, of course he chooses the lowly. The lowly will be lifted up. Of course he chooses the few because he cares about the few. Of course he chooses the outsider because the gospel goes where human religion can't. Of course he chooses nobodies because in his kingdom, nobodies are treated like somebody. And then they go tell everybody. If you feel like you're a nobody, this is the kingdom for you. If you feel like you're excluded or you're too sinful or you're too messed up, you don't have the right background, you don't know all the right things, then this kingdom is for you. Jesus is for everyone who knows himself to be a nobody. This is the favorite quote I read while studying this week. Jesus loves her and was prepared to breach age-old conventions to reach her. Our failures in evangelism are often failures in love. Listen to this, Restoration Southside. I want you to hear this. Nothing is so guaranteed to draw others to share our living water than an awareness that we genuinely care about them. People want to know that we care about them before they care about what we know. Let me say that again. People want to know that we care about them before they care about what we know. Who in your life do you need to cross barriers in order to reach? Who in your life needs to know that you care about them? Not that you're their little, they're your little project, but that you actually care about their life and their struggles and their discouragement, that you actually want to walk alongside them that if they were asked about you, they would say, I don't know, but that person loves me. That is where you should spend your time missionally speaking. You have to earn a voice in people's lives. Francis Schaeffer used to say that if we had 60 minutes to share the gospel with someone, he would spend the first, first 55 minutes asking questions. Loving them and knowing them. Somebody that Francis Schaeffer discipled was one of my favorite professors at seminary, Jerem Bars, and he said that they once went on this trip, and they were on this bus trip, and they're going through all these amazing towns in England, and everybody would get off in a new town and walk around and go eat and hang out, and then come back, and then they'd go to a new place, and he said Francis Schaeffer spent the entire day talking with the bus driver, and when the other people would get off and exit the bus, he'd stay on the bus and hang out with the bus driver. And Jared kept thinking, this man is missing an opportunity to see England. At the end of the day, that man gave his life to Christ. Because for the first time in a long time, someone had treated him with dignity and respect and wanted to know him and ask him questions. Who in our lives do we need to cross barriers in order to reach? 
He brings the excluded to the well. If you felt left out by religious people or by others who are not religious, this Jesus is for you. Why does He bring us to the well? He brings us to the well to give us living water. Did you see it in verse 15? He says, The woman said to Him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty, so that I have to come here to draw water. You see it in her words? She doesn't want to come back here anymore. She's tired of hearing people whisper about her and her sex life. She's tired of hearing people judge her with her eyes. And she wants some of this water, but she thinks she's talking about some magic water. That if she can just drink, she'll never experience it again. We're thirsty, and you know that feeling. You know that feeling of feeling thirsty, and nothing will seem to help. Are you tired of thinking intimacy and climax will help you be happy? And then you're thirsty again. Thinking of one more celebration night at a great restaurant with food and drink. That'll make me happy. And then you wake up and you're thirsty again. Tired of thinking if I can just lose three more pounds. If I can just look this certain way. And then reaching your goal and waking up and realizing you're thirsty again. You see, we all wake up with this aching, gnawing feeling. And the gnawing feeling is this. Is this all there is? Are you tired of trying to perform and still feel thirsty? Try to have a good reputation. That's my sin. And still feel thirsty. Are you tired of trying to look good enough and still feel thirsty? He's one of the most famous actors in Hollywood, and he's handsome, if you hadn't noticed. And he's rich. And pretty much anywhere in any country, you could show a picture of Brad Pitt, and people would know who he is. He did an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. And Brad Pitt says this, Man, I know all these things seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation, and desperation, and loneliness. If you ask me, I say, toss all this. We've got to find something else. Because all I know is that at this point in time, we're headed for a dead end, a numbing of the soul. And I don't want that. A complete atrophy of the spiritual being. The Rolling Stone interviewer has the courage to just say, so if we're heading towards this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? And Pitt says this, hey and I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain, and I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know. But I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, it doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. You see, we all look at these people, these heroes from different society, and think they have it. If I could just have that, then I wouldn't be thirsty anymore. More fame, more reputation, more money, a better vacation, a better car, a better condo, something, maybe a promotion, something on the outside has to fill me up. I know I struggle with that every week. Y'all know me as you'll continue to get to know me. I struggle with depression and anxiety. 
The last five days, I've really, really struggled with my depression and anxiety. And some of it's clinical, some of it's mental, some of it's spiritual. But at least some part of it is, I feel like there's something else more out there and I'm living without it. It's this constant sense of, I feel empty and there's got to be something else more. And I even know the right answers. And sometimes it's still not enough. He gives us living water because we're sinful. Because we're lonely. She's by herself. Because she's confused. She, Jesus wants to have this real conversation with her about her husband. And she wants to have a conversation with the living God about where she should worship. We do this too. When people finally really start getting to know us and asking us where we're at with Jesus, where we're at with faith, we say things like, I know there's a God, but I'm not sure what He wants. I'm not sure any of us know what He wants. Or I think God is what we make of Him. Or I think gods are ultimately all of them the same thing, pointing to the same thing. Or something like, I think you can be spiritual but not religious. It's our way of using theology or the misuse of theology to not have to deal with our heart problem that I've had five husbands and living with another man and nothing seems to stop the ache. What are the ways in your life that you push off conviction, that you push off an experience with Jesus because you don't want to deal with what's in your heart? You see, he offers her acceptance. He doesn't want her to be thirsty again. The more you understand your unworthiness, the more your acceptedness will mean to you. He offers her living water. Verse 14 is a reference to the Holy Spirit. He's saying that ultimately, no man, no experience, nothing is going to fill you up, but what can fill you up is the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who have never experienced the Holy Spirit before, what it does is it begins to cause you to find dissatisfaction with your sin and with the things that distract you, and it causes you to fill with affection for Jesus. And it continues to do that. Shows you your sin, shows you Jesus. Shows you your sin, shows you Jesus. For those of you who do know the Holy Spirit, He's not saying that you'll never be distracted again. I've been distracted this week. What He's saying is that Spirit won't go It'll keep welling up inside of you. It'll keep being a river of life, reminding of you who you are and who Jesus is. But ultimately, this is who God is. Look with me in verse 21 through 24. He's given her acceptance and love. In 21, it says this Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Will you worship the Father? You will worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Did you hear that fantastic reality out of John? The reason that Jesus goes. Samaria, which is something no other person, no other Jew does. The reason that he goes is because it said earlier in the text that he had to go. The reason that he goes is because the Father is seeking the ones who are far off, is seeking the excluded, seeking the outcast. And that we don't seek the Father, but the 
Father chases us in our sin and puts His hand on a place that might hurt, but to bring us life and call Him to Himself. And the reason that Jesus does this, it says this in 39-42. Many of that Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, so when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with Him, and He asked, he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know indeed that this is the Savior of the world. Jesus gathers up unlikely people, and he does it using unlikely people. And he's telling her that worship is not about Jerusalem or Samaria anymore. Worship is about a person, not a place. And the reason that he comes is he says the wheat, the fields are white with harvest, which means Jesus wants people who are far off to be brought near. How dare the church make him sound like someone who's aloof and disinterested and sinners and people whose lives are a mess, whose people's are alive with shame when Jesus goes to this place and talks to this woman of shame and invites her whole community to follow him and he spends two days with them. It's the excluded that Jesus is interested in. It's the ones whose lives are not put together that He wants. These are the kinds of followers that the Father seeks, ones who will experience Him in spirit and in truth. He pursues the unlikely and the excluded. He does so to offer them living water, water that won't go away, that meets the gnawing itch in their life. And He does so that He can use those who reach even more sinners who are far off. Isaiah 55 says this, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. He's saying, I, my presence will fill you up and be enough for you. In conclusion, I'll tell you this story. Aaron and I walked through the show Lost. And in the show Lost, which we... We're literally trying to catch up, binge watch right before the last episode started. And so I'm literally at my computer in one place and the other, and uh, the TV's on here, and I'm like, like this. But one of my favorite scenes in Lost is this Ben, who's been this monster, this manipulator, one of the worst characters in television history. Just, just about the time you think he can't do anything and then he manipulates two more people and goes above and beyond. He's a narcissist. He's manipulative. He's ugly. He's about self-preservation. In fact, he actually kills Jacob, who's been calling them to all of this anyway. At one point, Eliana is chasing him. He's supposed to be working hard at the camp because he's a prisoner now and a chasing him because he runs off. And as she runs off, he finds a gun. And when she gets to him and catches up to him, he's pointing a gun at her. And he tries to explain to her why he really killed Jacob. And this is the conversation that they have. He says, drop it. Put the gun down. Miliana starts shaking. She says, what are you waiting for? He says, I want to explain. What I want to explain is that I know what you're feeling. And she says, you have no idea what I'm feeling. 
And he says, I watched my daughter Alex die in front of me. And it was my fault. And I had a chance to save her. But I chose the island over her, all in the name of Jacob. He sacrificed everything for him. And he didn't even care. And I stabbed him. I was so angry and confused. I was terrified. But I was about to lose the only thing that had ever mattered to me, my power. But the thing that had ever really mattered was already gone. I'm sorry that I killed Jacob. And I do not expect you to forgive me because I can never forgive myself. And she says to him, what do you want? And he says, just leave me alone. And she says, where will you go? And he says, I'll go back to Lot. Why would you go back to Lot? And he says desperately, because he's the only one that will have me. And she looks straight at him and says, I would have you. And then this tortured, evil man feels acceptance for the first time and drops his weapon and follows her off onto the beach. Because acceptance changed him. And acceptance changed this woman in John 4. And it changed this community in John 4 in Samaria. And if you will let it, the acceptance of God in Christ will change you too. It will give you living water to fill you up. It will remind you that it's okay that you're not okay. Let's pray. Jesus, in your spirit, we know that you go after the excluded, that the Father seeks people who are forgotten about, excluded, messed up, don't know the right things, don't do the right things, and those are the worshipers that the Father seeks, ones who will encounter the truth of Jesus and live in Him by the Holy Spirit. Would you make that true of people in this room today? And for those of us who have run away from living water to run back to our old cisterns, God, we ask that you would wake us up, that you would help us to delight again in your Son Jesus and bask in how much he loves us and experience living water again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.